I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Peter. Um, the book of First Peter, as you um, guys may know, we are walking our way through this book, First Peter, in the coming weeks together at Grace Fellowship, and um, we are coming up on I think our fourth or fifth Sunday in First Peter. And today we'll take a look at First Peter chapter two, really verses four to ten. First Peter two verses four to 10. Just as a couple, couple quick words of reminder, um, Peter is written to a group of struggling Christians, Christians who are encountering and um, undergoing much suffering and sorrow and pain. Um, Peter has been written to encourage these Christians who are struggling to take a hold of in a deeper way, this living hope that they have in Jesus. That's been our focus in our weeks together. So I'm going to read verses 4 to 10. I want to encourage you to listen carefully and closely to this God's word. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment, as we take a look at these words in your word, Lord, we acknowledge of our deep need to hear from you. Lord, we've not come here to hear a guy talk from a platform, but we've come hoping that your spirit would be our teacher. Lord, so that's our prayer. We want to ask, Lord Jesus, that you would do the thing that only you can do. Lord, would you take these words in your word and the words that I prepared and would you use them to great effect in our hearts, in our lives tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I remember the day when my boys in particular first discovered the phenomenon of an echo. Like when they first realized that they could yell in certain places and they would hear their voice kind of yell back to them. 
I remember the look on Henry's face when he screamed one time and then he heard the reverberation of his echo and his eyes got really big. He was a really small toddler when that happened. And because my boys are fascinated with echoes, then obviously we always get in the car and we drive through the tunnel in Homewood on Oxmoor by the Palisades as often as we possibly can. You guys know the tunnel that I'm talking about? And when we enter into that tunnel, no matter what the temperature, we roll down the windows and we scream out out of the windows and we honk the horn and we just yell as loud as we can because we love to hear all the echoes happening. And we were driving through this tunnel one time recently and when we got to the end of the tunnel, Leland, my six-year-old, said to me, he said, Daddy, when we're right here, I can still hear you talking back there. And the reason that I bring that up is I think it's actually a really good way to think about this text from 1 Peter. See, this text from 1 Peter that you just heard me read is a particularly echoey text. When Peter is talking right here, we're actually hearing the Old Testament talking from back there, if you will. This text is full of echoes. When Peter's telling his audience a struggling, suffering, depleted, defeated, persecuted, weary people, when he's instructing them here, he's instructing them really using echoes from the Old Testament. When Peter is talking right here, we're actually hearing an echo of the Old Testament back there. So here's the way that this sermon will go tonight. Um, There's really three echoes in this text. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at each echo. But, But each of these messages from Peter, each of these echoes from the Old Testament are really intended to get across one main idea. And it's the main thing I want you to hear tonight. If you don't hear anything else, I say this is the main thing you have to hear. But what Peter's trying to get across to his audience in this moment is that their life in Christ is caught up in something so much bigger. Their life in Jesus is caught up into something so much bigger, so much richer, so much deeper than they could see or they could imagine. You might put it like this. Peter's audience, they're they're living in light of a much bigger story. A story of redemption, a story of salvation, a story of what God is doing in the world. And Peter wants to make sure his audience hears it. So let's take a look one echo at a time. Um, Here's the first echo from the Old Testament. Did you guys notice all the stone talk? Okay, listen to this, verse four. As you come to him, a living stone. Verse five, you yourselves are like living stones. Verse six, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. Verse seven, the stone that the builders rejected. Verse seven again has become the cornerstone. Verse eight, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There's a lot of stone talk in this text. 
My neighbor and I were recently digging in the ground in order to pour a concrete wall, and we kept just coming across stone after stone after stone after stone, and we kept having to remove these stones. See, in our world, stones are sometimes annoying things that we have to get rid of. But in the Old Testament, stones are actually a sign of the promises of God. So for example, there's a time in the Old Testament when the people pile up a big stack of stones as a way to remember how God had been faithful to his promises for them. But also in the Old Testament, the idea of a stone is really significant because it was tied to this idea of a son. There would be a stone who would be a son of David, this royal king that would be this king that was to come, that would be the great Messiah that would rescue and restore God's people. And it was, he's sometimes described in the book of Isaiah and other places as a stone. He'd be this righteous ruler that would be like a stone, a cornerstone in particular. And because of his strength and because of his leadership, God's people would be restored. And one of, these, one of the things that this son would do is he would rebuild God's temple. And when he rebuilt God's temple, God would come again to dwell and to live among his people again. And when you look at this passage, Peter is using that stone imagery to make the point that Jesus is this son of David Jesus is this cornerstone in which the restoration and the redemption of God would come. And furthermore, that Jesus is this one who would rebuild the temple so God could dwell with his people again, except the thing that Peter wants us to know is that this temple would be built from living stones, restored hearts, restored people that would be a part of this rebuilding of the temple. Living stones that would be built into a place where God could dwell. A spiritual house that God would build in all places throughout the world. So rather than there being a physical temple in Jerusalem, there would be a spiritual temple that would be built in all places. What Peter wants his audience here to know is that in spite of their circumstances, in spite of their struggles, They themselves are this temple. They themselves are the fulfillment of this great promise. That in spite of their pain and in spite of their sorrow, Peter wants his audience to know the same thing that you and I have to hear from this text tonight. That you and I are the place where God dwells. So the vision of the Old Testament is that God's special presence would live in this one particular temple. The fulfillment of the New Testament is that God's very presence would dwell in little temples. You and me scattered throughout places like Birmingham. Y'all, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, so I remember this thing called a light bright. Does anybody know what a light bright is? 
I'm going to do a bad job explaining it, but basically it's this little device in which there's a light that shines in the back of it, and you can put these little pegs in it to make different shapes. And you can construct these kind of beautiful, like, light, not really drawings, but things from a light bright. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, because I'm starting to sweat. And sometimes I imagine us as Grace Fellowship. And imagine how we gather here for worship in order to then be scattered throughout our city. And I imagine kind of the Grace Fellowship light bright. If you can imagine our city as like a, a backdrop and each of you are kind of placed in these different places tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. You're placed all throughout our city as the place where God's very presence dwells. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody and when you were in their presence, you thought to yourself, you were in the presence of God. When those moments, that person is living into the call of this text. Peter wants his audience and therefore you and me to know that we individually, collectively are the place where God dwells. That's the first echo. Now there's, there's more echoing in this text. Look at this second echo. You can read about it in verse five and verse nine. Look at verse five. You yourselves are like living, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And look at verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may, pro may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In these two verses, Peter is drawing on an echo from the Old Testament, and it is that of the Exodus story. See, he's using Exodus imagery here. So we can read about this in Exodus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 10 and in other places in the Old Testament. See, in those texts, we're told that God had rescued and redeemed his people, Egypt, out of slavery. He had saved them, rescued them so they could be his treasured possession among all the nations. And his call for them is that they would be a kingdom of priests, a, a royal priesthood. They'd be a whole nation of priests. And in the Old Testament, priests do a lot of things. But a good way to think about the main thing that priests did in the Old Testament is priests were channels of God's blessing to the people. See, in their teaching in the towns or in the way they led worship in the temple, their mission and their call was to represent God to people and to be a channel by which God's blessing could flow. See, what Peter wants his readers to hear, it's the same thing you and I have to hear tonight. That's that in spite of their circumstances, in spite of the fact that they were enduring such pain and such sorrow, in spite of the fact that they were depleted and they felt defeated and they felt like they were failing, that they were a part of something much bigger 
What he wanted them to know is that they were the channel by which God was bringing blessing into all the world. I don't know when's the last time you gave it some serious thought, but everything about your life is intended. Every good gift you have is intended and is meant to be a blessing to other people. Every minute in your day, every drop of water in your faucet, every piece of food in your refrigerator, okay, every talent and every gift that you have, your abilities, these things were given to you in order that they could bless the world around you. See, your life is about something bigger richer and deeper. You and I, we, y'all, you are a channel of God's blessing in the world, despite how your life might feel tonight. That's the second echo. And there is a third. We read about this one in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This section about once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Peter's drawing directly on language from Hosea chapter 2. See, in Hosea, the prophet Hosea tells God's people that though they had endured the punishment of exile, that God was going to restore them again. He was giving them his mercy because he's a God who's rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. He was going to give his people mercy and restore them as a means by which, Hosea chapter 2, he could restore all the world. See, what Peter wants his audience to hear the same thing you and I need to hear tonight, that despite their circumstances, despite the fact they they felt defeated and depleted and struggling and sorrowful, their life was caught up in something far, far bigger. He wanted his hearers to know that they and that we and that you together, collectively, individually, We are a means of God's mercy in this world. When someone is in our presence, the same mercy in which we have been loved by God, we are supposed to extend to those around us. And if you look in verse 9 again, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, we're to be proclaimers of mercy. We're to talk about it. We're to speak of it. Our opening scripture tonight began by saying, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We're supposed to be people who speak of the mercy that we've received. We're supposed to be people who display the mercy that we've received. See, Peter wants his audience to know, his hearers to know, that their life is caught up in something far, far bigger. You and I, according to this text, are the place where God 
dwells. You and I, according to this text, are the means by which God blesses the world. You and I, according to this text, are a means of God's mercy in this world. So what, right? What kind of effect is this text supposed to have in your heart and in your life tonight? As I thought about that this week, there's really three things that I think a passage like this does for us. There's three things I think this text affects in our hearts and in our souls. There's three things that I think are created in our hearts and in our souls when we hear these words. The first one is something of a posture change. Let me tell you what I mean by that. See, this text is teaching us that our life is about something far bigger than ourselves. And the problem with you and me is that we live a lot of our life curved in on ourselves, don't we? See, so many thinkers in the history of our faith have spoken of sin and the primary problem of sin is that we're curved in on ourselves. Literally, you and I live our life curved in on ourselves. We think about ourselves first. We think about our own things first. We kind of get trapped in ourselves. And there's many problems with that. For, for example, the fact that we're curved in on ourselves, the scriptures teach, is a form of slavery for us. When we're curved in on ourselves, we're, we're destroying ourselves. There's another problem with being constantly curved in on ourselves, and that's that when you look inside yourself, aren't you sometimes so deeply discouraged? I was talking with someone this week and they mentioned to me that they're just so disgusted with themselves. And because they're so disgusted with themselves, they've noticed that it's translated into a posture of being constantly disgusted and angry at others. I don't know if you've ever looked inside and been curved on in on yourself. I don't know if you've ever just had that sense that you wish God had something better to work with than you. See, according to this text, our God's not thinking that. He's not thinking that. See, when we're curved in on ourselves, we're destroying ourselves. When we're curved in ourselves, we might be disgusted with ourselves. But a text like this changes that posture. And it helps us look up. And when we look up, we become alive and we become free in Christ. I think this text helps us take our view off of ourselves and it opens us up to see others. There's a second thing I think this text might do in your heart and in your soul, or at least I know it did that for me this week. If our life is a participation in something far bigger than ourselves, 
in the words of this text, that we are a place where God dwells, that we are a channel by which God blesses the world, that we are a means of God's mercy in this world. I don't know about you, but I feel the sting of conviction in these words. See, mostly I'm asleep to God's purposes in my life. And this text comes along and it kind of shakes us and it tries to wake us up. And it's not optional, if you notice. It's not like Peter is saying, you know, you're a means by which God blesses the world if you kind of are in on that today and you kind of feel like doing that. No, he's saying the identity of God's people is that they are these things. And of course, you and I can either live into that with care and with thought or we can live asleep to those purposes. I think this text is supposed to bring us a bit of conviction, but in a kind way that we can be shaken and woken up. There's a third thing that I think this text does in our hearts and our souls. I think it transforms our tomorrow. And let me explain what I mean. I know that there are so many of us here at Grace that sometimes feel particularly aimless in your life. You might feel aimless. You might feel a lack of purpose. Okay? You might know that tomorrow you're going to do a bunch of ordinary, mostly mundane things. And you're going to wonder as you change a diaper or as you see a patient, You're going to wonder as you teach students. You're going to wonder as you do the things that you do, as you meet with your customers, as you go on to work on your projects, as you go study for your thing. You're going to wonder if your life is really that meaningful. And this text says with such authority that it absolutely is. That every second of your life, every moment of your life is a sacred opportunity. It's a holy sacred moment to live into the purposes for which you were saved and redeemed. To be a blessing in the world. To be the place where God's presence dwells. To be a means of God's grace and mercy in your life. And it might not feel particularly dramatic for you tomorrow. And that's just completely okay. See, you, you were redeemed. And you can be a means of God's mercy in a unique way that no one else in this world has the opportunity to be. See, a text like this has a way of transforming the way we see the things we do tomorrow. So whether you know you're in need of a change of posture whether you know you need to be shaken awake in your faithfulness, or whether you need some encouragement that the things that you're doing are not meaningless, whether that's you or anywhere in between, I want to invite you tonight to come and celebrate at this table. So when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of this cornerstone Jesus. See, all the promises that I've told you about tonight are built on the foundation of the work that Christ has done for you and for me. So when we come to communion, simple bread and simple wine are signs of the objective work that Jesus has done for you. They're seals 
of his promises to be pressed down deeply into your heart, especially when they're hard to believe and take hold of. So we come to this table, we're reminded that we are going to need strength for the things that he's called us to. And just like food nourishes our body, we gain our nourishment from Christ himself. When we come to this table, we're reminded this, this work that our lives are caught up in will one day be complete. The scriptures tell us that one day the knowledge of God will cover the earth just like the waters cover the sea. You and I will be home, will be restored fully and finally. And when we come to this table, we're reminded that those promises are true as well. Lord, we do not come to this table on account of our own righteousness. Lord, we are not in and of ourselves worthy. Lord, but we thank you that you are the same God whose very character it is to have mercy. Lord, thank you for the mercy that you have extended to us, the ways you've redeemed and restored, renewed us, the ways that you have saved us to holy purposes. And Lord, we ask that as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, that we could be reminded of those things, that we could be renewed um, in those things. That, Lord, you would kindle great hope in our hearts, we pray. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.